0: Previously on the Thirty Second Timeout podcast, I really want to talk about how I don't think the NFL should be talked about right now. <laughs> not in the not in the twenty four seven news cycle that ESPN is putting together. How responsible are they going to be for the health of their players that they made millions of dollars off of after they've left their schools? The NCAA won't go far enough. That is that is the mechanism I was talking about when I said that the league was rigged. That is the best way. I mean, that's smart on the NBA's part. If you want to dictate and set up some pretty ideal matchups, that's the way to go about doing it. Just watch the reffing in these games. And if it's a close series, if this comes down to the game seven, the Raptors are going to lose on a close call at the end of the game. Like, this is the greatest evidence there is for why the NHL should... You know, I wasn't really opposed to the shootout until I saw all these overtimes and how freaking awesome it is.
1: And your number five starter is the guy who went through all the injuries in McGowan and now is back. So I don't want to say it because I don't want to jinx it, but you've got Drew Hutchison and then you've got what Drew Hutchison could be in eight years.
2: I don't think they're a playoff team, but I think if they can pull out a few of those series in, in Tampa or New York, they might just be knocking on the door for a wild card. the The one thing I'll say about the fan base in Toronto and being there so many times you notice it. If we lose a ball game... 4-3 or 5-3, but we hit two home runs, they go home happy. If we win a ball game 1-0 or 2-0, and you know it's, it's fairly uneventful, but they win,
0: they go home unhappy.
1: And I think what the board ultimately had to weigh out was the fact that the spending of the money, the $150 million war chest that's apparently going to be handed to ex-manager, Mm-hmm. Is David Moyes the right person to spend that money? And I think right. the board was convinced, especially after the Everton defeat, where we just looked miserable. Um, that that David Moyes is not the right person for that job. Chelsea might not be happy with that result. I mean, they, they, they would have taken they wanted the draw, but I mean, this puts Athletic on the front foot. If they go if they go to, to Chelsea and they score a goal, I mean, Chelsea's in, in the rough. They've got to go back at least for a game. To this Yup Heinke style and try to really stick it to, to real. Otherwise, they're gonna find themselves in a situation where they might they might dig themselves a, a, a too big of a hole.
0: You're listening to the 30-second timeout podcast for May 2nd, 2014.
1: I keep thinking about those times you ran away, and I can't get it out of my head. We keep drifting, cause you keep floating away. I can't believe
0: all the words that you say. I think it those sides you ran away and I can't get it out of my head.
1: We drift it away I can't
0: believe all the words that you say. Do you guys do you guys smell that? What's that what is that smell? Is that a what's that smell coming from Vancouver? Is that a it kinda smells like a rebuild. Does it, does it smell like a rebuild to you guys? No, no, it's not a rebuild. There's no way. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Colin Schreider. I'm your host. Another jam packed episode for you this week. We're going to be focusing a lot on hockey and Champions League, as we usually do here. Uh, Freeze Nathu is going to come back. He's going to talk to me about what was a very busy week in the British Premier League and in the Champions League, of course, with Liverpool. Losing to Chelsea at home, at Anfield. And then in the Champions League, having both Bayern Munich and Chelsea lose on their own turf in very dramatic and very surprising fashions, in my opinion. So we're going to be talking about that with him. Uh, we've got to break down the NHL playoffs. The first round is done. It's over. The teams have moved in and they've moved on. And uh, certainly there were some surprises and some close calls for some teams down the stretch. And we're going to be talking about that with Michaela Schreider. She's going to come back, and she's going to break down everything that's been going on in the NHL playoffs in that first round. And what we can look forward to in the second round uh, with some of these amazing teams that have gotten on and are going to be playing in the next round. So we're going to be talking about that. But first, since I'm going to be waiting the podcast so much towards those two topics, I want to talk about a little bit of basketball. Specifically, I want to talk about the Toronto Raptors. And they managed to hold on after blowing a 26-point lead against the Brooklyn Nets uh, on Wednesday. They play tonight. They play Friday night, Game 6 in Brooklyn. And uh, whether or not they win or lose, I think that this team has definitely showed that they've definitely grown up. They've showed a lot of experience in some of these games. They've managed to bounce back after losing in Game 1. They managed to bounce back after losing in Brooklyn in Game 3. And sort of heartbreak fashions in both of those games. And they managed to hold on. After they gave up that massive, massive lead. And Kyle Lowry down the stretch was Mr. Clutch. In the same way that DeMar DeRozan was Mr. Clutch in Game 2. And they certainly have shown that they are a a team to be reckoned with. More so than anybody else really thought that they would be. And uh, looking forward to Game 6 tonight. I'm not sure if they take it tonight. I hope they take it tonight. Because all the talk around this series has been about the fans. To a certain extent, there's been... a. There's definitely a difference between how the fans in Toronto have showed up for games versus the fans in Brooklyn, and it's it's fun to watch as a as a Canadian and a Toronto Raptors fan. You take a lot of pride in all these these throngs of fans turning out to support this team. This isn't necessarily a franchise that has had the most success ever, and Brooklyn, on the other hand, is a side that went out and they tried to build success right away by having a payroll of 180 million dollars bringing in superstars like Paul Pierce and Kevin Garnett and trying to establish themselves as a draw in that Brooklyn marketplace in New York. And, you know, to a certain extent, they've been decently successful, but the, the noise level between, I mean, when you have Kevin Garnett calling out his own home base fans, like he pumped them up so much after game one and game two saying, oh, you can't, you know, you can't say F Brooklyn, referring to Masai Ujiri who swore at Brooklyn uh, before game one of the series, he said, you can't stay off Brooklyn and then come into Brooklyn. And we're like, no, KG. We can definitely just walk into Brooklyn and do whatever we want because your fan base, your basketball fan base, it's pretty quiet. It was a little loud there in game three when they started getting on a roll, but before then, it was a bit of a dud, uh, especially it paled in comparison to how the Raptors fans turned out and how they cheered this team on in games one and two and again in Game 5, and I think the crowd has definitely been a huge factor in this one. Even Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce called out the response of the Brooklyn fans in Game 3 and the noise level that they brought compared to that of the Toronto Raptors, and uh, this is all good for Canada basketball, all good for the Toronto Raptors, and it's going to be fun to watch. Hopefully they take it tonight in Game 6. Fingers crossed, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really cheering for this Raptors team. I think you should too. Even after everything I said about the NBA and how crooked it is, well, how I think it's kind of crooked, and uh, maybe how it has some mechanisms to create some ideal series in the playoffs, I still think that maybe the Raptors have a fighting chance here, and maybe they finish it off tonight in Game 6. You can't talk about the NBA this week without talking about what happened with Donald Sterling, who obviously made some racist remarks to his his mistress. I don't know, his family situation is very odd. He runs the team along with his, his estranged wife, who, and he has a son-in-law who's like, I don't know. It's kind of a messed up scenario to begin with. And he made it even worse for himself in that he made some comments that are uh, definitely not acceptable in this day and age. So Adam Silver in his first real challenge as an NBA commissioner uh, brought down the hammer as he as he definitely was just to do so. And he did the right thing. He's uh, banning Donald Sterling from the NBA and uh, fined him $2.5 million maximum allowed under the collective bargaining agreement and he's going to move to have Donald Sterling forced to sell the team with three-quarters of the NBA's ownership voting against Donald. If, if he gets three-quarters of the vote of the NBA owners, they can force Donald Sterling to sell the team. Certainly, they handled this properly, and that's all that really needs to be said about that. It's They did an excellent job in ensuring that... Uh, showing that there's no place for that kind of thing in this game and uh, in sports in general and in society in general. And I uh, definitely applaud Adam Silver for his uh, his efforts thus far to eliminate that kind of thing from the game, as well as getting Donald Sterling, who shares those kinds of views, those racist views, out of the game altogether and not associated with the NBA anymore. Uh, busy week. A lot to talk about but we're moving into NHL and we're moving into Champions League. We're going to start off with the NHL and the big news in the NHL this week alongside some of these awesome playoff series. So the news off the ice was the firing of John Tortorella and we all kind of you know we all kind of saw that coming, didn't we? I mean, there were some people that were holding on thinking that maybe these owners since they brought him in would hold on to John Tortorella in Vancouver and he would be the leader of the Canucks next season. Uh, that is definitely not the case. He will not be back. They have fired him. They brought in Trevor Linden, who, uh, as the president of Hockey Operations, uh, after reviewing the team, they have let John Tortorella go, still with four years on his contract. And uh, obviously we all thought when we looked at that situation that it was toxic, that this wouldn't work. They didn't have the kind of team that was built to be a John Tortorella team. And then midseason it comes out that a guy like Ryan Kessler, who is a two-way player and a bit of a as a physical forward, seems to be a John Tortorella guy when halfway through the season, word comes out that Ryan Kessler wants out of this organization. Well, it kind of spelled doom for John Tortorella. When a John Tortorella guy on a non-John Tortorella type team comes out and says that he doesn't want to play there anymore, it's not good for you. It's not good. And I said a couple of weeks ago that I thought if they fired Mike Gillis, it wouldn't make any sense if they kept John Tortorella since John Tortorella seems to be the outlier in what has been a string of playoff appearances for the Vancouver Canucks under Mike Gillis. And uh, as I didn't think that John Tortorella was a Gillis guy, I didn't think he could be blamed for the fault of John Tortorella kind of ending up with this team not making the playoffs. As I said, I don't see this is good for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, John Tortorella should not have been the coach of that team. I congratulate them on making moves to make their team better. Whether or not it is a rebuild that I, that I said off the top, that I said I smelled coming from Vancouver off the top, I don't think this is a rebuilding situation. This team has far too much money to lose if it decides that it can take four years, basically the time that the Sedins have left on their contracts in Vancouver to conduct a rebuild. This is not a rebuilding organization. This is You're going to hear words like retooling and fresh start out of Vancouver in the coming weeks uh, and months and maybe the next year if they don't make the playoffs. It, it, it is a retooling. It is trying to find pieces to supplement the talent they have in the Sedines. And uh, it's going to be a long road. It is going to be a mediocre team for years to come. Well, no, this is – see, the thing is you don't know how this team's going to go. They had a very injury-riddled season, and whether people that want to stay or some new people step up, it's hard to say. Hard to know where this organization is going to go. I can tell you they're not going to make moves to be a rebuilding team uh, and if they do, it's going to be only to create cap space so they can bring other guys in in the meantime. If they move Ryan Kessler and Alex Edler, if you have about $10 million there, they're not going to sit on that $10 million and just get draft picks and sit and wait and suck and try to get more draft picks, higher draft picks, but instead they're going to trade away a Ryan Kessler and Alex Edler and then use that money that they saved to go out and get guys that they think can make the organization better in the short term and uh, that's what they're really going to be. That's what they're going to do. They're going to try to be the Leafs between the years of 2004 and 2013. They're going to try to just oh 2000 and, 2008 when the rebuild really started with under Brian Burke. Uh, they're going to try to uh, retool. They're going to try to bring in pieces that'll help them win. Now they don't want to take a couple of years off of winning so they can win later. This is all about money with this organization. You get the feeling that. They want season ticket holders in the seats, as any organization should, as any right, sane ownership group should. They want fans in their seats, and rebuilding with this uh, very uh, tenuous, is tenuous the right word? This very tenuous fan base that exists in Vancouver is not an option. But the John Tortorella firing, I think, is in the right direction to bring in a coach that is better suited towards the sedine style of play, which definitely John Tortorella wasn't suited for. Michaela Schreider of the Silver Seven Sens. what do you think of the John Tortorella firing?
2: Oh, man, it's not surprising, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so either.
2: Uh, yeah, you knew from day one. As soon as Mike Gillis got fired, you knew that this torts time was 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 just counting down. Um, he wasn't a, re- a good fit for Vancouver. Uh, as soon as he got hired, it just it just seemed off to me. He's a very tough guy, very tough as nails, and, and Vancouver's known to be a little soft. If anything, they're... They're not exactly the rough and tough team that Tortorella, I think, should be coaching. So it was never a right fit to begin with. And uh, I'm I'm sad to see him go because honestly, I like Torts. I hope he gets a job somewhere else. I'm sure he will. But Vancouver just wasn't the place for him.
0: Another coach that seems to be on the hot seat quite a bit given his team's recent struggles is uh, Balsma in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh really did kind of struggle putting away the Blue Jackets in this series, similar to how they struggled Last year against the Islanders, both series going Islanders, both series going to six games. Uh, do you see this season having similar results for them?
2: I do. I don't see them getting past. I'll talk about this a bit later, but I don't see them getting past the the third round. Uh, they're going to struggle in the second, but they're not going to go any farther than the third. Uh, I'm not really surprised that Columbus gave them the the hard time that they did.
0: Mm-hmm. Columbus
2: has been playing do or die hockey for about a month before the playoffs even started. So they knew what it took to win when your backs are against the wall, essentially. So I, I wasn't very surprised about that. Also, Columbus, they they didn't do this quite as well as other teams have, but they did a pretty good job at keeping Sidney Crosby at bay. And I know we're going to talk about this a little later, but you know they had Dubinsky on him pretty well, and and he wasn't able to generate the offense that he normally is, and you could tell he got a little frustrated, and that is the key to beating Pittsburgh is is shutting down Sidney Crosby, and I think Columbus tried their darndest but just couldn't completely shut him out, and therefore they couldn't walk away with the series, but uh, they sh- they sure put up a fight.
0: Certainly, a lot of the blame seems to rest on a few different players, and we'll talk about Crosby and Malkin's struggles in a little bit. But I want to get your opinion on Marc-Andre Fleury because he hasn't looked like an elite goaltender this season and certainly not last postseason when he was benched for Thomas Foucault. And it almost seems as though if they had a suitable backup, Fleury may not be the guy that's starting a net for game one of the second round. What what do you make of Marc-Andre Fleury? And what does his future with the club look like?
2: In my opinion, Fleury hasn't looked like an elite goaltender in years. Even in what I would call his heyday, he still needed three or four goals a game to win. And fortunately, he was on a team like Pittsburgh that could produce three or four goals a game. But he's never been that goalie that's going to shut teams out, game in, game out. He's going to win games on his own. He's never been that kind of goalie. Um, Unfortunately, he's now become a scapegoat in Pittsburgh. And and in games like Game 5 against Columbus, where... He made some bad mistakes and and uh, essentially cost them the game. He still made 44 saves, but he was the reason they lost, according to the fan base and according to the media. So in terms of his future with the team, I can't see them wanting to go forward if this keeps up season after season because it seems to be a a reoccurring theme for for Fleury. He just doesn't put up the the goaltending you need in, in big playoff games. So... I can see him wanting to stay there because if you're a goaltender who's maybe struggling a bit, Pittsburgh's probably a pretty good team to be on. Definitely. But uh, I, I, I can't see the club wanting to go forward with him. I can see them certainly going after a goalie down the road like Jonathan Quick who can win games for you because when you have the offense that Pittsburgh does, when you have an elite goaltender like that, you're almost guaranteed a Stanley Cup. So they're not going to win a Stanley Cup with flurry in the future, and I don't think they're going to want to try.
0: Fleury's struggles in the postseason have been almost as consistent as the recent struggles of Sidney Crosby and of Ganny Malkin in the postseason. Uh they've been well documented, the, the struggles of Crosby and Malkin uh so oh, far yeah. this postseason. Do you think the media is making much ado about nothing? They still put up points. Their plus minus isn't too, too bad. Uh what do you what do you what is your opinion on these two?
2: As much as I enjoy... Sidney Crosby struggling a little bit here and there. I do think it is a little overhyped in the media. Crosby was still six points in six games. Malkin was still seven points in six games. Granted, three of those goals came in one game. Um, Yes, they're not playing to the level that we're used to seeing them play at. They're still producing to a, a, a smaller extent. And the team is still winning when they're being held back. So I wouldn't be too worried if I was Pittsburgh's fans. I do think, obviously, they need to step up if they're going to go anywhere in the playoffs. Um, But I think that this just showed that Pittsburgh can win without them.
0: You think that that's the question that I have for you? The next question is, can Pittsburgh win without these two being in elite forms? Now, you've already went ahead and said what your ceiling for this team is. Do you think they even get through the second round against the Rangers without these two playing at an elite level?
2: You know, they can certainly beat teams like Columbus when Malkin and, and Crosby aren't producing. New York is is a difficult team to predict. I mean, if New York can get the goaltending that Lundqvist is capable of and Crosby and Malkin continue to struggle, I can definitely see Pitts, uh, Pittsburgh struggling.
0: Goaltending is definitely uh, the, the buzzword around the playoffs this year as it is almost every other year. Uh, this time of year, what do you what what did you make of Carey Price in the Montreal-Tampa Bay series? It was a pretty clean-cut series, but I want your opinion on what that center on the centerpiece for that Habs team, Carey Price, how he did.
1: He
2: was solid. He he wasn't really challenged much by by Tampa Bay, but he made the saves that he needed to, and and he was uh, very reliable. The one thing you can count on from Carey Price is he's always going to be calm and cool. He's never going to let the pressure get to his head. So. Um, I think if he can maintain that, obviously he's up against a much bigger challenge in the Boston Bruins, but uh, I think the way he's played so far would have most Montreal
1: fans very confident.
0: Do you agree with me that, and we're sticking with goaltending, do you agree with me that that Habs-Lightning uh, series would be a completely different series if Ben Bishop was in net and wasn't hurt for the Lightning?
2: I do. I think it would have been a different series in the sense that Tampa Bay would have won some games. Um, but based on the way that Tampa Bay played, uh I don't I wouldn't see them walking away with this even if Bishop was in that. I know I had them winning the series before the series started, but just based on their play, they were not good. <laughs> they were they really showed their inexperience. They were making bad choices. Um all around they didn't have very solid games. You know, I'll hand it to Stamkos. He he played well and he did his best to put this team on his back, but they looked young. And yes. uh, they you could really tell they were missing Marte Saint Louis.
0: Do you think, uh, well, let's talk about that trade a little bit. Do you think Steve Eizerman might be on the hot seat a little bit in Tampa Bay now?
2: I think he might be just in terms of, because of the relationship he had with St. Louis, and it is largely speculated that St. Louis left because of Eiserman because of the way he handled the Team Canada situation. So, I think a lot of people might place the blame on Eiserman for losing St. Louis in the first place. Um, you know, if a player requests a trade, there's really not much you can do. I think he made a Okay, trade. There was nothing that special about it. Sam Lee wanted to go. He let him go. But I, I think, if anything, Iserman's going to come under the hot seat just for the relationship he had with Tampa Bay's biggest player.
0: Kind of all uh, kind of all centers around what that second round pick or that first round pick they have uh, turns out to be, as you exactly. kind of see with the Phil Kessel, Tyler Sagan, Dougie Hamilton trade. It's a completely different scenario when and who those first round picks turn out to be.
2: Exactly. And uh, only time will tell.
0: The team that Montreal will be playing in the second round is the Boston Bruins. They took on the Detroit Red Wings. It uh, turned out to be a little bit more of a series than most people anticipated. Is there a, is there a crack in Boston's armor? Uh, what is it, and how can Montreal exploit it?
2: Um, coming out of the Detroit series, I don't think there's much. You know, Boston's not banged up that much. Chris Kelly's down. I know Dan, uh, Danny Payet is going to be coming back, but you know, I don't think they're that banged up. I don't think any cracks are going to be exposed. That came out of the Detroit series. If anything is going to break Boston, it's going to be the history. Montreal has won 24 out of 33 playoff series between these two teams. You know they have Boston's number in the playoffs, and if anything is going to be the vice of Boston, it's going to be the
1: pressure that that history holds.
0: Uh, just want to speak to Detroit for a bit because they did, even though they were a young team and a team that was full of AHLers with some aging stars that were hurt throughout the year, uh, they did manage to hold their own for a while. Do you see the playoff, the Detroit Red Wings playoff streak ending next season?
2: No, I see it playing out very similar to the way it did this year, unless they make any significant changes. Um, they're going to be in the playoff race as they are every year. They'll be lucky to see the second round, uh, like I said, barring any serious change. But uh, they're, they're a good team, even when their veterans aren't play and they've got a lot of really talented young guns coming up from the minors that you know we we know Detroit's scouting history and we know the way they develop players and now we're tra- starting to see some of those players come up and play in the NHL and uh yeah I think they're, they'll definitely be in the playoff race.
0: Montreal-Boston is certainly one of the more enticing uh arguably the most enticing playoff series in the next round what are your keys to the series for both of these teams in order for them to be successful?
2: Yeah, this is going to be a fun series. Um,
0: <laughs> it really will be. It? It's going to be awesome.
2: <laughs> I, I can't wait. It's an original six matchup. These are They've met more times in the playoffs than any other two teams in, in NHL history, I believe. Like I said, Montreal historically has Boston's number, so I think that might be uh, the key to this series if Boston cannot let that pressure get to them. Um, they're, Boston is such a deep team offensively. Their fourth line has most teams drooling it's it's unbelievable how much depth they have up front and while montreal isn't quite as deep offensively they have a very dynamic top six and some of their depth players like uh brandon gallagher and renee bork really stepped up in the in the tampa Bay series so i can see them i can see this being a, a battle of of depth up front for sure um but i think what's going to really come down in this series is goaltending tuka rass versus carrie price these are two of the best goalies in the league two goalies that know how to handle pressure. They've played in high pressure situations already this year in the Olympics, and they both came out, what I would say, very successfully. Um, I think that's going to be the story of this series. I give the upper hand to Price. I think he is the better goalie. I think Tuka Rask has a better team in front of him. In terms of who's going to win this series, I honestly don't know. Uh, you know Logic says Boston's going to win. They're the better team this year. But history says Montreal will win, and I, I really hate to go against the Habs against Boston in the series. In the playoffs, excuse me. Um, so I'm gonna say Boston, but I wouldn't be surprised if Montreal took this.
0: It's gonna be it's gonna be a tight one, and hopefully for all hockey fans, this one ends up going to seven games. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the one of the series that I thought was definitely gonna be going to seven games was the St. Louis Chicago series in the first round. I just want to briefly have you touch on what you think happened to this St. Louis Blues team down the stretch and in this series.
2: If it was anything that happened to St. Louis as much as it was to Chicago, Chicago got you know they were down to nothing, and that is where Chicago starts to shine. Is when they're they got a little bit of pressure on them. Historically, they've always had um, a scary series early in the playoffs where they you know they're down three one or two nothing, and then they come back and they win that series and they just roll right into the Stanley Cup Finals. So I think that may have been that series for Chicago where they got that little bit of pressure that they needed to motivate them. And that was all they needed to win four games in a row and take this series. I think maybe St. Louis might have sat back a bit when they were up to nothing and thought, okay, you know, we're in a comfortable position. We might have this series. And that's where Chicago's at its its most dangerous point, I think, is when you start to let up a bit. And uh, Chicago's just too powerful for anybody to sit back.
0: Well, here's the funny thing. Like, Chicago goes out and they struggle early to St. Louis and they end up surviving the series, much in the same way that Pittsburgh survives Columbus – Yet the rhetoric around the Chicago Blackhawks is how great this team is and how they're able to overcome that kind of adversity. Whereas everyone kind of looks at Pittsburgh and says, "Well, this team is not going to be able to survive the next couple of rounds." Why do you? Why do you? Why is there that difference there between these two teams?
2: That's certainly a good point. I think in that case, expectations are the main difference. You know, there's a lot of expectations behind Pittsburgh, especially when they're against a team like Columbus who um, squeaked into the playoffs. They're never really. A powerhouse in the East that's for sure whereas Chicago and St. Louis those were very much viewed as the powerhouses in the West these are two of the best teams in the regular throughout the mo- the majority of the regular season and I think that when you have uh, an elite team in the East versus a not so elite team you expect that top team to win so I think because Pittsburgh didn't quite live up to the expectations of you know just walking through that series no problem they have the the rhetoric of you're in trouble now whereas Chicago and St. Louis they're very evenly matched teams and very powerful teams so to to come out of a, a series like that and say we beat the St. Louis Blues when we were down to nothing is much more impressive than to say we beat the Columbus Blues jet, Blue Jackets in 6 games
0: speaking of expectations the uh, playoff expectations around the Colorado Avalanche seem to move day to day what ended up what do you attribute to this series going the way it did with Colorado Bursting out of the gate and then ultimately falling to Minnesota
2: it's hard to pin this series on one thing. These were two very similar teams, and uh you know they're not amazing teams, but they're very they're very good teams and I think with with Colorado I think they should label this year this season a very successful one, especially when you compare where they were last year to now. Uh, they've made a lot of progress since then. Last year they didn't make the playoffs. People were wondering what's going on. they've got all this talent, and yet they can't do anything with it. In comes Patrick Waugh, who's just at that right age and, and stage in his life where he's young enough that he remembers what it was like to be a player, but he's he's old enough to lead this team. I think he was a huge difference maker with this team. Um, and it was a very successful season for them. And it's only going to get better from here. I mean, Landeskog, Duchesne, McKinnon, O'Reilly, there's so many players on this team who are still so young and yet have already shown so much talent that... Um, I don't think Colorado should look at this series as a series they lost, but a huge step that they took in, in their progress.
0: If you're Patrick Waugh, or similarly the coach or the GM of the organization, what, what do you say to these players? Because on the one hand, you did way better than anyone expected you to. On the other hand, you had a great regular season, you flunked out in the playoffs, and you don't want to end up being this talented team that seems to flame out, such as... You know the San Jose Sharks often do. What 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 do you say to your players? Do you have an upbeat vibe, or are you kind of criticizing them? How do you go about setting them up for the off season and a successful season next year?
2: I would say take it as a learning experience, and that's what these players need to do because they're still very young and they need to learn that you're not always gonna win the Stanley Cup every year. Uh, you're not always gonna see the success that you saw in the regular season in the playoffs. And just to learn from that, and and to learn what it takes to win in a game seven situation in the playoffs, and and I would just reassure them that you know you've got a we've got a very good team here, we're going in the right direction, and to not let this um, get them down too much.
0: Speaking of direction and uh, expectations and all of that, what the heck is going on with the San Jose Sharks yet again? Well, obviously we'll talk about them in a minute, but I wanted to get your Your take on what aspects of the Kings lineup seem to allow them to be such impeccable playoff performers year in and year out? The year they won the Stanley Cup, they were the 8th seed. They managed to run the table and win it. Why is it that it seems like no matter where they are in the standings, they just managed to be able to win?
2: Uh, Well, I I think that's it. They've got pretty much the same team that they had in 2012 when they won the Cup. So um, that's a team that knows what it takes to win the playoffs. They've also got a number of players who know what it takes to play under high-pressure situations. Dustin Brown, Ante Kopitar, Mike Richards, Drew Doughty, all played at some point in their careers in, on international levels, in the Olympics, in the World Juniors or the World Championships. So they know what it takes to play on with a lot of pressure on you. And I think, especially in this series, when you're down 3-0, that's what's going to get you out of that series, is those players who just thrive under pressure. Um, and I think even even players like Jeff Carter, who... I am the first one to criticize this guy, but mm-hmm. he's always a surprisingly important player in big games. We saw in him in the Olympics. He was one of the most productive players on Team Canada, and I think that he was a huge factor in not only on the ice, but I think off the ice as well. Um, all of these guys just know what it takes to play under pressure.
0: Okay. San Jose Sharks. Uh, we can talk we all go. day about, about <laughs> what happened to this team and how they ended up blowing up, but I'm far more interested in and what you think they're going to do going forward. Where do the San Jose Sharks go from here? In other words, how can they stop being such perennial playoff chokers?
2: Well, I think they have to do something. Um, If they don't, and that's what San Jose has been criticized for uh, in the past, is year after year, they see these playoff chokers flounders as as being mildly successful seasons and they go on pretending that no changes need to happen well this is the year that i think they need to wake up and realize that something needs to change whether it's coaching whether it's you know key players in the room like joe thornton or patty marlowe um something needs to change even it just to calm the fan base down because if i'm this fan base i'm i'm waiting for something major to happen to to shake this team up and and figure out whatever it is that <laughs> that limits this team in the playoffs.
0: So with Thornton and Mar- Marlowe both getting three-year contract extensions, what is it that you would do if you're the GM of this organization to try to uh, to get something going in the right direction to kind of build on this regular season momentum that never seems to pan out in the playoffs?
2: I hate to say it, but I, I would probably trade one of them at least. Um mm. You know, there Pat Patrick Marlowe I think has a very high trade value. He's I think he had 33 goals this year. He's a very very talented player, and unfortunately he's also one of the players that's the first to get blamed when when series like this happen. So I would trade him either most likely in the summer get a, you know something decent back for him. I would go forward with Joe Thornton because I think that Joe wants to win here more than anybody else, especially now. Uh so that's that's probably the first player I would I would move.
0: We've talked quite a bit about goaltending in these playoffs. Is uh Anthony Niami the goaltender for this team?
2: Um he he's certainly a very good goaltender, but I he's one of those goalies that is kind of disposable. I can see any goalie playing in that situation. He he won a cup in, with Chicago, but he wasn't exactly a, a key player in in that series. So I think that whether or not they go forward with Niemi, it wouldn't make a difference overall. If they, if they got an elite goaltender like Jonathan Quick or, or, or Tuka Rask, just you know hypothetically, uh, that would make a huge difference. But I think Miami's one of those goalies that doesn't really make a difference either way.
0: The San Jose Sharks' uh, early playoff exit means they won't be in the second round. The team's in the second round, as we already mentioned, is going to be Boston, Tampa Bay. There's also going to be Philadelphia, Pittsburgh. Anaheim versus the LA Kings and Chicago versus Minnesota. I want your take, first of all, we've already talked about Boston-Montreal. What's your? Uh, how much of a fighting chance do you give, sorry, not Philadelphia-Pittsburgh, the Rangers in Pittsburgh, how much of a fighting chance do you give the Rangers in the next round against Pittsburgh? I
2: think if the Rangers have any hope of success in this series, it's going to come down to two things. One being goaltending. Like I said earlier, Hen- Henrik Lundqvist can give this team the goaltending that he is capable of, they have a chance against Pittsburgh. Two, if players like Boyle and Carcillo can get under the skin of Sidney Crosby and get him to lose control of his emotions, that's how they're going to beat Pittsburgh. That's how any team beats Pittsburgh. They get Crosby to fly off the handle, and this whole team collapses around him. So if New York can do that, they have a chance against Pittsburgh.
0: On the other side is obviously the Pittsburgh Penguins that uh, are seemingly struggling, and their stars are struggling. What are the keys for that team in this series to get on to the Eastern Conference Finals?
2: I think um, it, it takes just that. They're, they're big guys stepping up. We need Crosby to, to produce the way we know he's capable of. Same with Malkin. Crosby's, um, you know, conversely to what I said earlier, Crosby has to keep control of his emotions if New York throws players like Boyle and Carcillo at him. He needs to be able to keep his cool and, and show this team that he's not going to fly off the handle. And that's what's going to give this team the confidence to win the series.
0: Did, do you have a magic formula for making that happen, for keeping Sidney Crosby uh, kind of his emotions at bay and getting by? Is it just a matter of guys around him stepping up and playing at a level they don't necessarily usually play at when he's not his best? Is that, are we putting too much blame on these guys and not enough looking at the secondary players to kind of step up when everyone in the league is just targeting those superstars?
2: I think that's a good point because we've seen Crosby in a number of series lose his cool and and the team has just collapsed after that and if if the players around him don't put so much emphasis on his emotions and just focus on their own game and and producing themselves that can make a huge difference. So that that's a good point. If if these uh you know depth players on Pittsburgh can can get the scoring that that this team needs, then they won't need to rely on Crosby quite as much and they won't collapse when he
1: collapses.
0: Right. Uh, moving into the Western Conference, I didn't ask you about the Anaheim-Dallas series because, in my eyes, I thought it was pretty straightforward. Uh, but this is very much this Anaheim-LA Kings series is very much a different kind of series than what the two first rounds were for these teams. What are the X factors for both these teams in this one?
2: That's a tough one because these are very, very similar teams. Um, they're they're very hardworking teams. They're very technically sound. Uh, you probably couldn't find two teams that are more alike in the West right now. Uh, they both have players that love to play under pressure. Anaheim has Getzlaff and Perry, LA has Brown and Kopitar and all the players that I mentioned earlier. Um, they both have young, talented goalies. I, I would give Quick the, the advantage over Hiller because I know Hiller struggled a bit this year, but Anaheim's got two goalies that they can fall back on now. So uh, it, it's hard to, to to say what's gonna, what factor is going to, come to play in this series because these teams are, are so similar i think it probably will come down to goaltending as these series often do with teams that are very evenly matched and in that case i would give the advantage to quick and i would say that la is going to walk away with it but i think this is going to be a long series just because these teams are so similar
0: uh moving to the other western conference series chicago is taking on minnesota and i know i know i know that you have Chicago walking all over Minnesota in this one. I do. But without a definitive starting goalie, what does Minnesota have to do to try and stay alive?
2: I think their defense needs to step up and give their goalies some help and try to keep – try, keyword being try, to keep Chicago's offense at bay. So players like Suter, uh, players like Ballard, need to, to put the pressure on Chicago and not let them get the scoring chances that we know they're capable of because – These goalies just, they won't
0: be able to handle it. Uh, Let's, I want to talk about goaltending. Before we get to who you have in the next round, I want to briefly talk about goaltending because we talked about it so much here. I know I'm putting you on the spot with this one, but if you're in the next round of the playoffs, what three goalies do you want to have in descending order? Who is your three, two, and number one goalie in this next round?
2: In the whole playoffs?
0: In the whole second round. Let's say second round. Just okay. to narrow it down a little bit. If you can't give me an answer now, I'll let you sit on it. I
2: could probably pull it uh, you know, out of uh out of nowhere. So don't <laughs> don't, maybe it, don't go off me, instincts,
0: but... not so much statistics. How well, was that?
2: I would I would definitely put price as number one. Um because he, like I said earlier, he knows how to play in a playoff situation and that he just stays so cool, and he doesn't let the pressure get to him. I mean, I don't think there's a goalie in the NHL who's got more pressure day-to-day on him than Carey Price, just based on the fan base and the media in Montreal alone. So uh, Carey Price would definitely be my number one. Uh, number two, uh, Jonathan Quick, based on the way he played in the first series against San Jose, when they were down 3 he he stepped up and he made the saves that he needed to. And he he's very much a high-pressure goalie. And I would uh, I definitely put him at number two. Number three, Rask. Um it, You know, pretty obvious as to why he's a very good goalie. He plays on a very good team. But uh, he's also he's very young. And I think that uh, much like Carey Price, he stays calm when he needs to. I know that his history hasn't always indicated that. But uh, he's been in a lot of high-pressure situations this year, and he's remained very calm. So he'd be my number three.
0: No love for Corey Crawford, eh? Nobody ever gives Corey Crawford any love. It's that glove hand. I know. Nobody, I, I feel that for Crawford. His glove hand. Crawford's yeah, good. Yeah, that's
2: true. He's a very good goalie. And actually, at one point last season, I had him as one of the Canadian goalies who we'd have on our Olympic team. Mm-hmm. Uh, but people don't often see how good he is because Chicago is so well balanced in front of him. Uh, and also, I think you know, Chicago won with Miami. They won with Crawford. Clearly this is a team that doesn't rely on goaltending as much as some other teams in, in the league do, like Montreal, for example. So I I think it's hard to to say that you would put Crawford in any situation when we haven't really seen him in, in those high pressure situations.
0: So in my mind, we've already last, last time you were on, we already talked about who you think is moving on into the conference finals and then also into the actual Stanley Cup finals. After seeing some of these teams play, uh, I'm still gonna assume that Boston and Chicago are your two teams moving on because you said Boston earlier and you have an undying love for Jonathan Tabe, so I know that <laughs> he's moving on. Uh, in the Pittsburgh-New York Rangers series and the Anaheim-LA Kings series, who do you have moving on from those?
2: Uh, I have Pittsburgh only because even when I go against them, they seem to, to take it home anyway, but I wouldn't be surprised if New York came away with that, but I'm I'm going to be safe and I'm going to go with Pittsburgh. Um, Anaheim, LA. You could flip a coin and, and determine the winner of this one. I'm I'm going to say LA in seven games. I think it's going to be a very long series. And it's going to be very close.
0: Does it? Does the second series you mentioned, Anaheim, LA Kings? Does it depend more on the health of Ryan Gutslaff or the goaltending of Jonas Hiller?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, i say the goaltending of Jonas Hiller because. Anaheim's a pretty deep team, and although Getzlaff is is very important, uh, very important leader on that team, I think that they can still get the production they need out of that team without him. Um, but I think that if Hiller struggles and Anaheim, you know, we haven't seen—I believe Gibson is the name of the backup—we haven't seen him really pressured this year. Um, if Hiller struggles and Anaheim starts to have goalie troubles, then they're in big trouble against LA. So yeah, I'd say hillers is, is more important in that
0: case even though you have Carey price as the best goalie in the playoffs i still feel like you've managed to anger some halves fans <laughs> with picking boston over uh boston over montreal in the next round and uh that is why i love having you on the podcast Michaela Schreider, <laughs> thank you for joining me
2: no problem thank you for having me
0: moving right into the other thing that this podcast slants heavily towards Pleased to be joined again by our Champions League and British Premier League uh, analyst, Freeze Nathu. Freeze. thanks for joining me. Always a
1: pleasure, Colin.
0: And one of the reasons why I had you back is because you were so awesome the last time. Another reason why was because this was an absolutely crazy week in both the Premier League and in the Champions League. Let's start off with what happened in the Premier League this weekend. What happened to Liverpool in that game against Chelsea?
1: Yeah, I mean, we we were talking last week about Steven Gerrard. This does not slip uh, line, but it, it looked like he he literally slipped because uh, it was a defensive lapse on his part. Um, and it's,
0: it's, <laughs> yes. it's it's unfortunate
1: that it came down that way. I thought that Liverpool looked great. I thought that uh, up until that point, I thought that Chelsea looked defiant up until that point. Um, Mourinho set them up in those two banks of four with kind of. The two strikers, most of the time in their own half. I mean, from what I could see, they were, they were running their socks off. But it was definitely a defensive performance. And Brendan Rogers said something after, like, you know, it's not easy to coach two banks of four uh, players standing in the 18-yard box. I, I kind of defer. I, I beg to differ. I think.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, no kidding. I think that
1: that's an incredibly difficult endeavor when you consider the likes of Gerard Suarez. Uh, Sturridge got some time on there at the end as well, uh, trying to break down your defense. And so I think for Liverpool, they were just, tactically, um, their styles didn't melt. Their styles did. Their style didn't suit them to win uh, last week.
0: Let, let's go back to the Gerrard slip, and let's go into the hypotheticals here, and say that Liverpool ends up down the stretch, blowing this Premier League lead, and don't win the title. What is Gerrard's legacy at the end of his career, oh, assuming that this is one of his last two seasons? I,
1: I think it's got to be said for the fact that, look, Stephen Gerrard hasn't won the British Premier League. That's... That's that's a hit on his pride, but come on, he's had a fantastic career for England. We'll never forget Istanbul. I don't think any soccer fan who's ever uh, seen that will ever forget Istanbul in the Champions League for them. They they won that against all the odds, against all the odds. Um, I think what it will be for him is that he'll see it as uh, an opportunity missed, particularly this season. And I think that the club will will see uh, maybe perhaps one of their golden boys go without working as hard as they could have for him. Um, and, and sure, that he, he owns this error, but we can point to a number of folks, uh, in, the Premier League this season who have had similar errors. In, in particular, Vinny Company, when, when they were, uh, at Anfield, v. Liverpool, when he, when he had a weird slip-up when he kicked the ball to, to Coutinho in the 18-yard box. So, if these kind of slips happen, they will roll with it. Um, it's not a slight to Stephen Gerrard, I don't think.
0: A person that he's always going to be tied to because he was his midfield partner for so many years with England is Frank Lampard. If you had to put a team together, uh, either in their prime, today, now, when they were young, would you rather have Frank Lampard or Steven Gerrard?
1: That's a great question. I think I would go with, I'll uh, I'll say Steven Gerrard. Perhaps that's just because we were talking about him, but I think that the way he's been so resurgent, if you look at a young Steven Gerrard, he was a particularly fast central midfielder. But the way he's been transformed now by Brendan Rodgers and maybe uh, Kenny Dalglish before him was this kind of deep-lying midfielder, and you still once in a while see these bursts of pace. And mm-hmm. and, and he hasn't lost that trick shot, that kind of like out-of-the-bag-from-nowhere strike. But I think in the latter stages of the match last week, Liverpool may have been too reliant on trying to get that Stevie G wonder strike. And it didn't come, right? Because they, Chelsea were sitting so deep. Mark Schwarzer was in fine form coming in for Petr Cech. Um and so they they will likely they will likely rue those chances. Um, but I think that I it would well, it would be Steven Gerrard.
0: Watching the end of that game, it certainly felt like if they were if Liverpool was going to win, it was going to come on the back of Steven Gerrard, solely because he seemed to want to be the one that takes the strike. I,
1: I think it was a recognition on his part that as the skipper of the side, he he felt obligated to to compensate for his mistake. Were they overcompensating? Perhaps a little bit. Maybe they should have looked for a little more of a, of a one-two pass to penetrate the two banks of four. Um, but I think that sh- that Jose Mourinho's tactics and Jose Mourinho's Chelsea left them little other choice than to seek a strike from outside of the box. And so that says something.
0: We talked a lot about, uh, and we have talked a lot about, the Chelsea two banks of four and how they seem to park the bus in big games. And they are the second best team in the Premier League according to points. If we forgot points for the moment, who do you think was the best team in the Premier League this season?
1: I think the best team would have to be for me Manchester City, uh, and that pains me to say, as as you well know. But I, I think that it's yes. it, it's one of those things where, sure, Pellegrini may not have gotten the best out of his side right now, but if I'm looking at all of the team sheets that any side could put together in in the in this in 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 the Premier League, it it would have to be City. And I say that because you think about the resurgence of Yaya Toure this season. You think about how great Samir Nasri has looked this season! Always amazing, David Silva. Maybe if they hadn't had Kun Aguero gone to injuries for much of this season, it, it might have been a different story. But you still had great performances from Eden Zeko, and 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 so I would I would really place them as one of those sides that they will look at this year and say maybe we slipped as well, if they don't end up winning the title.
0: With that's what I was about to ask you. If with City having uh, a game at hand and not being too far back, do you still believe that Liverpool is the team that holds on here? Or does City ha- just have just that extra game that's going to allow them to win the title? See,
1: I, I had always thought that Liverpool would hold on to, to to win the title, and I still maintain that. But this game-in-hand thing is something that I think as soccer fans we have to evaluate what, what the impact of the game-in-hand is. It's because, to a large extent, at some point I believe City had three games in hand, and they were still sort of second in the title race. And and the mm-hmm. English media was still discounting them, which which sort of puzzled me because the game-in-hand Sure, it can be looked at as like this: Oh, they have to win; they have no choice. But on the other hand, it's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, when when we take for example hockey, when you're looking in down into this down the stretch into the run up to the playoffs, people love having this game in hand. It's sort of like that trick in your bag, right? You you pull out an extra. Yeah,
0: trust me, as a Leaf fan, and how many how many <laughs> games they uh, everybody else had at hand near the end of the season, it was certainly uh, something to really really fear. You fear the game in hand Absolutely. when you're not a part of that team. It's it's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, Moving into the Champions League, and what a week in Champions League it was. A little bit surprising on both fronts. I don't know if you'd agree with me that uh, both games were somewhat surprising, but we'll start off with Bayern Munich and Real Madrid. Of course, Bayern Munich uh, kind of just blew it. What went wrong for them?
1: I think uh, I first get to say I told you so, because I'm pretty sure I predicted this result last (laughs) week uh, on the podcast. Uh,
0: You did, you did. I I feel
1: pretty good about that. Yeah. but I, I've got some stuff just sort of thought up about about um, about that Bayern Real match. The first thing is credit to Real Madrid; they had a they had a game plan, and it, they and in, in reality, Bayern were ultimately undone by two set pieces within which Sergio Ramos really went to work. Now, let's think about this first of all. Set pieces were also a weakness of Barcelona, and they had Carles Puyol, who was who's arguably one of the who in his prime was one of the world's greatest center backs. So, is, is this a weakness of Barcelona? Is this a weakness of Bayern? Or is this a Pep Guardiola remit, uh, a weakness? And, and does this say that some of the pundits had come out afterwards and said there was a need for a world-class centre-back on the part of Bayern? And that's something that teams have exploited. Um, and, and with this game plan to explore it, hide on set pieces and to be patient, uh, Clive Teasdale at some point had said, that, you know, they can defend like this forever. It felt like Madrid can defend like this for forever. And and so what that brings me to this uh, is this idea of possession versus meaningful possession, um, and and so I, I think that 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 really came to play when it when you had uh, uh, when you, when you had this match last week, and I think it was it, they again erred on the side of of possession in, in, at the cost of meaningful possession.
0: I asked you last week if you would say that this was a disappointment for Bayern, and you said that there was a level of patience and understanding amongst their fans. This is if. They didn't win this game, and they just won the Bundesliga. But after that 3-0 defeat at home to Real Madrid, do you have a different answer for me? No, I
1: think the answer stays the same. I think when you you look at it, look, they got to the Champions League half-final. That will be huge for their supporters. They didn't win it. Sure, the expectation was to win it. Sure, they've got this new coach, but it will take time. I think that Pep will look at this summer as an opportunity to bring in the last sort of few pieces he needs to complete his side. I think that they still have a chance at the double. They they can still go to Berlin to try to win the Pokal, uh, the, the, the the German Pokal, the the cup. Uh, they've already won the league. They've won the league by the biggest margin in the fastest fashion ever. Uh, and so I don't think the answer changes. Their supporters will have patience, but I think that next season they will look for European success.
0: Do you attribute them winning the league as early as they did to some of the reasons why they've lost some of their games in the Bundesliga as well as this game at home against Real Madrid? I,
1: I thought about that at first. And you sort of, When you look at those type of questions, you look at the psyche of the players. And and to me, when I look at the psyche of these players, they've been to two finals uh, in the Champions League in recent memory. Um, they've lost one. They've won one. Uh, here, they've been to the half-final. They've won the league twice in the past three years. It, it, I don't think that that's what it is. I think that they they had won the league and they thought, okay, we will take it easy in the league. We'll be able to go out and really have a, have our focus on the Champions League. But it it may have just slipped tactically.
0: What uh, you spoke briefly about Pep looking forward to the summer to bring in some pieces. What would those pieces be, and what kind of changes are ahead for Bayern?
1: I think it's got to be a, a center back. They've got to have. They, they will look to have a ball carrying center back, almost in the style of Mats Hummels, who is. Available, unavailable, uh, yet to be determined, but I, I would be surprised to see him stay within the Bundesliga if he was to be moved. But but that type of ball-carrying, rushing to support uh, those those mobile midfielders, those ball-playing mid- midfielders, the cruise types, the Goza types, yeah.
0: A, a Pepe-type center back, would you say?
1: Yeah, yeah per se.
0: Uh, what was more embarrassing? And this one I've really thought over, and I can't really put my finger on which one I'm leaning towards. Is it more embarrassing that... Pep's team's effort in the Champions League at home and losing in the way they did or Jose Mourinho's former Real Madrid side getting into the finals I'll just say for me that I think it's pretty much the same side that Jose Mourinho had last year with the exception of Gareth Bale but I mean they still had Di Maria it's not that much of a drop-off I I just can't say that both of these to me seem like Pretty embarrassing for both these managers. What would you say?
1: I have previously confessed my love for Gareth Bell, but uh, <laughs> 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 um, no. But, but I think it, it's for me. It's got to be Jose Mourinho's former Real side getting into the finals, and I say this mm. because that comes on the back of a change in tactical conviction, and and maybe this is something we can chat about a bit more because does Jose Mourinho line up a little too cautiously for European competition? Right, Two banks of four, well, two roaming strikers, yeah. and, and does that come back to bite them?
0: And it, When did Jose Mourinho go to the Roberto Di Matteo way of trying to win in Europe? I don't understand why he's shrinking back the way he is.
1: And, and I think that maybe, is it, is it a question of trying to cede respect to the impo- opponent? But, but I don't think it's a question of respect. I think they've effectively ceded the tactics to the opponent. Because when you sit back and wait, the onus is on your opponent to break you down as they will. They have full license to do that. And, and that really comes back to, to bite them, right? Because they don't have the appropriate resources to... When if they go down, they have the personnel, but they're not set up to go out and look for another goal. And they open themselves up to, to counter.
0: Uh, we've spoken quite a bit how we thought that Chelsea had shot themselves in the foot by sitting back and waiting uh, when they were there in Madrid. What were the benefits of them sitting back and waiting to go home? And, and this is... Go ahead. Sorry.
1: This is something that I got wrong last week because I thought they would go out and chase the game. I, I mean, I figured that they would go out and, and try to win the game because once the away goal came, uh, although Chelsea scored first, but once the away goal came, the, the tie was completely shot in the foot. I I, I don't mm-hmm. know what the benefits were. I guess the benefit was to try to get Atletico Madrid to commit and try to create quality counter-attacking chances, but I, I cannot see that paying off for them. It didn't pay off for them. I mean, to lose 3-1 at Stamford Bridge in front of your own supporters riled up for another potential shot at the Champions League Cup. It, it How could you set up and do that to your support? How could you set up and do that to your players? And apparently there were some voices coming out uh, out of Eden Hazard's camp in particular who said that, you know, this isn't the way we were meant to play. This isn't the type of footballer I am. I don't I don't understand why we play this system.
0: Oh, that's not good for Chelsea fans, I'll tell you that much. Now, they they did come out and were a little more aggressive... I thought, in the second leg than they were in the first, and they end up losing, obviously, 3-1. It's just, just the they managed to kind of outlast their opponents to get to this stage, or did they really actually deserve to be here?
1: No, I think they deserve to be there, because I, I think they may have perhaps played differently in the quarterfinal in the group stages. And you look at the way they come out and play some, some, some nights in the Premier League. They come out there and really ram it down the throats of their opposition. They really go to town and 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 maybe the two nothing Liverpool match in, in in retrospect is not the because that's the closest on our memory kind of skews our perception of that but they've gone out mm-hmm. and had some pretty convincing results this season and and it hasn't come in it when they're lined up defensively
0: let's forget for a moment about that first leg where Chelsea sat back in Madrid and let's just focus on what Chelsea did and could have done in that second leg at Stamford Bridge. What do you think Chelsea could have done differently so they didn't lose 3-1 at home? Yeah, I think, number one, when you look at their crosses,
1: three out of 17 crosses successful. Mm. And and I, that's, that's telling in, when you're a counter attacking team that you were trying to break down the pitch, get the ball to someone in the middle and see a finish. That's the number one thing. The second thing is they... they, they they had a high degree of pass success but the majority of their passes were in the middle third so that tells me that they were not uh, they weren't really going for that killer pass right that that, that fantastic like that fantastic final ball they didn't get Definitely. that and and their and their chances created weren't huge they, they they weren't quality chances and so i'm i'm convinced that chelsea just effectively botched their tie and, and it's, it's got to come down to the manager they're tactically they 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 were set up completely wrong for me
0: would you rather have Pep Guardiola or Jose Mourinho as your manager right now? Just as a, just throwing that out there.
1: I think the thing, that, here's the difference, is that Ho- Jose Mourinho can step into any any side and he can drill that tactical awareness into them. Uh, they, Definitely. They, that, that's the thing, is he, he doesn't need pieces, he doesn't need to bring anyone with him. But when you look at a Pep Guardiola side with the right pieces, it's a thing to be reckoned with.
0: So, All-Madrid final, what, who do you, can you speak to right now? who you think takes it. I know it's a little early on and there's a lot to be played out in the Liga and it is uh, 23 days away, but could you speak to or do you want to wait for the final?
1: All of a sudden, the tickets from Madrid to Lisbon just got really expensive, didn't they? I I, I can't imagine that. It's, <laughs> so, it's, it's sort of like a, when when German fans crowded up Wembley and it was kind of the ultimate uh, middle finger, so to speak, uh, to, to English football. But I think this year, eh, with Spanish fans going to... From Madrid to Lisbon, it will it will be something to say. I, I will I will say, if all is said and done and the teams can stay healthy and morally well, so that means that Atletico Madrid fights off all of the transfer rumors that are sort of surrounding them right now. If they can fight that off, if they can stay healthy, I think they can get a win. Because Atletico Madrid mm. I, I I really do, and I and I think that it will come down to somewhat of a Cinderella story. And I mean you had you you they may also win La Liga they may come close to winning. true. It, 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 we can't discount them. Mm-hmm. I mean, these guys are a solid side. They have a motivated manager, and they're a compact unit who really want to win. They see themselves as that underdog, and that's a dangerous game to play with those kind of teams.
0: Fries, thank you for joining me, and I uh, look forward to getting your analysis uh, pre-final. Thanks again. Always a pleasure, McCall, take care. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Fries, Nethu, and Michaela Schreider getting you caught up on everything British Premier League, Champions League, and NHL. I hope that you found the conversation as enthralling and informative as I did. This has been the 32nd Time Out Podcast for May 2nd, 2014. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns about anything that has been said here today or on a previous podcast, please don't be afraid to contact me on Twitter at thirty-second timeout. That's at 302ndTimeout. Anything you have to say, you can always reach me there. Please subscribe on iTunes. I hope that you tune in again next week. Thanks for listening. Take me out, Mountain City. Thanks for asking.
2: I'm fine. How are you? What brought you here?